Thank you for being here this morning. We are working our way through the book of Acts into chapter 17 now, and I'm going to confess to you that I've been praying over one of the goals that I have for us and for you as this particular message is presented. And here's the goal. I'm, I'm praying that, that you and I, all of us, when we leave this place today, will be more distressed. Now, let's pray, and then I'll explain what I mean. Father, we do thank you for this time together today. It's so good to be in your house with your people. We pray that you would open our hearts to all that you have for us. We thank you for your presence here. We look to you for all of your good gifts, for grace and life. We thank you. In Jesus' name, continue to hear us in worship. Lord, speak to us through your word. I pray in Jesus' Amen. Well, with the pace that we're, we're on trying to get through the book of Acts this summer in our series on living in step with the Spirit, we've uh, arrived at Acts 17. And Luke is writing, continuing to write uh, in his second letter to Theophilus, his good friend. But it's difficult to deal with everything that we might in a sermon series all the details worthy, worthy of our attention. But uh, I wanna set the scene as we approach this part of chapter 17, we're gonna start at verse 16, where the apostle Paul finds himself in the city of Athens all alone. He's waiting for some friends to join him in Athens, particularly Silas and Timothy, perhaps some others. But they've been on a missionary journey around the uh, Middle East and up in around the area of Athens and north and east of there in a variety of cities doing uh, missionary work. And they've been quite successful in several of the cities in the area, but along with the success has come opposition. And some of the enemies of Christ, enemies of the church, uh, enemies of good solid religion, have come up against Paul particularly, and it's become very dangerous for him to travel freely about the uh, area. So each time they stop somewhere in one of these cities, you can read about it in the first part of Acts 17 and look at a map and see where they are. The, um, the need for him to leave uh, brought him from one town to the next. And it was like his helpers, uh, Silas, Timothy, and others were telling him, it's too dangerous. You need to leave and go on to our next stop. They had, they had come to Berea altogether. Berea was a very good stop for them along the way. People received the gospel. They were very serious about it. But even there, there were some enemies who stirred things up against them. And it got so bad that Timothy and Silas said, Paul, you need to go to Athens now ahead of us. We're not even gonna go with you. So get out of town and we'll finish up. We'll stay back and we'll do some church work while you're there in Athens waiting for us. And that's where we begin this morning. Acts 17, 16. And I should set this up with one more thing. When you go to Athens, 
Paul did what everybody does when they go to Athens. They become a tourist and you go for a walk. So Paul has been walking around Athens and paying attention to what he sees. Acts 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he's greatly distressed. Other translations, he's, he was provoked. He was deeply troubled. Some even translated angry, greatly upset. Well, the translations vary, but I'm wondering, was he mad because the city was full of idols or was he grieving and sad because there were so many idols around the city, so many altars around town. And was he upset because all of these gods, to him, they're nothing. There's nothing in them worthwhile to worship. Appreciate, enjoy. Even a plastic apple has a place in our world. You can enjoy these things, but there's nothing to them to worship. So, what is his motivation? What does he do? He went immediately from being a tourist to being a pastor and a preacher and an evangelist. He went right to the local synagogue and started talking with the flock there, people he would have a lot in common with. And then he went public. His distress and anger or his grief did not cause him to run or to abandon those who were so wrong. I, I don't want anything to do with these people. Look how wrong they are. We have nothing in common. I'm getting out of town. He didn't do that. Not at all. Even as he was alone, he took the good news of Jesus, the message of Christ, to these people right where they lived. Well, let's keep on reading. Verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. He's just striking up conversations. 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, Epicureans, they believe that this is all there is. We have life, we're born, we live, we work, we get older, we die, we pass away, whatever happens to us, when we pass away, that's it, black, nothing, darkness. No afterlife for the Epicureans. Stoics, a high moral code, live your life well, uh, live it very harshly sometimes, they had a lot of rules and regulations on how to live, but everything was based on reason. Their God was a God of reason. So these two very bright and articulate groups were together, interestingly enough, listening to the new and fascinating ideas of a strange Jewish teacher from Jerusalem, from Tarsus. 18, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And I stop there because the word babbler, it's a fine word, it's okay, but the actual, uh, a more accurate translation would be, what is this seed picker 
trying to say. Now, you might think, well, what's this farmer trying to say to us? Well, farmers have a lot to say. This has nothing to do with being a farmer or even a seed picker, but it was, a, it was an illustration or a way to explain when people take ideas and pick them out of context and then put them together in an arrangement that they like and come up with their own philosophy for life. A little bit of truth here, a little bit of made up fable there, whatever it might be, a couple of false gods along the way. You put it in a package and you seed picked. Well, that was their term for it. So it is a little bit of a slur, but it's not like they hate the guy. It's just, he's kind of a seed picker. And what's he trying to say to us? What is this babbler trying to say? Otherwise, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Go back in our service today. How many times have we referenced a living God, a resurrected Jesus? Just look at our music. It's wonderful and amazing. We talk about it all the time. We take it for granted. They deny it, fight against it. Well, then they took him, verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? This is kind of the pinnacle audience. These are really smart people. Can we hear more? We need to figure out what you're saying. Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. Verse 21 is kind of in parentheses, but it's an explanation. All the Athenians, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. All they did all day long was just debate and talk and chat. Sounds like seminary to me. And it's terrific, it's fun, it's wonderful. Even when you kind of disagree, you still have to love each other, but you can disagree. Well, anyway, this stuff is going on every day, all the time in Athens. Uh, Lenski, Richard Lenski, a a prolific writer back in the 1800s, wrote a wonderful commentary on the New Testament. Here's what he says about this particular part of Acts. He says, he, Paul, might have longed to have his helpers with him but he was alone. All eyes were upon him. In all Greece, there was no audience such as this. Without effort on his part, it had assembled just for his sake. He was here by invitation. They wanted him to talk, to speak and teach them. He was, he was here by invitation and every ear was keyed to hear every, anything that he might say. He felt the full responsibility resting on him. He knew the Holy Spirit was with him. No wonder Luke records his address. That's the end of the quote. Well, you've heard about, you, you maybe even know about this. You might have a television that does picture in picture. I've never been able to figure that out, so we don't enjoy that in our house, but picture in picture is quite common. Well, this is a sermon in sermon presentation 
today. There is that feature to our message. There's no way that I can do a better job of explaining our basic needs for the one true God than what Paul offers here. So let's listen in as Paul preaches. Verse 22, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It was a compliment. I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He's gonna fill in the blank. Marvelous. Paul's distress compels him to proclaim the gospel to these folks. He has learned by now to take sinners as they are, start there and then move ahead with the gospel. He knows that the gospel has the power to transform lives. Who would know better than Paul? who was once known as Saul, about transformed life. Well, there's a God they don't know. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't scoff at them. What's wrong with you people? He doesn't do that at all. He meets them where they are and uses their own curiosity and their willingness to admit that there just might be something else out there. They've never heard of Jesus, most of them, if any of them. They don't know Christ or his story. And he's gonna fix that. They're at least gonna be introduced. So he goes on to describe God, our creator, to them. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in a temple built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And he doesn't need anything from us. We have the pleasure and privilege of gathering together and offering our worship and praise. He doesn't need it. He encourages us because it's so good for us to be in his presence. There's a lot more to that, but God is not a needy God. He needs nothing. Certainly doesn't need a place to live. Rather, he gives, everyone in, uh, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else, everything else. Nothing left outside of his creation. Our God is the creator of life. He's involved in our daily lives. He has been so throughout history. He's not some rock or metal that can be fashioned into a statue or some symbol to be worshiped, he's a living, breathing God with great interest in who you are. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history 
and the boundaries of their, of their lands. 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. What a marvelous word. He's not far away. He's right here. Reach out. Amazing. So what response does Paul call for? Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You know the truth now. You know the truth of our relationship. Creator, people, gone into sin, Savior, repent of this sin. And he has sent a Savior, a sacrifice on our behalf to accomplish all of this. Verse 31, he has set a date when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Oh, there's that resurrection thing again. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's not reasonable to the Stoics and it can't be possible for the Epicureans. So they sneered. Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. We need more. At that, Paul left the council. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Maris, and a number of others. So the responses are, some sneered, still happens. Others wanted to hear more, intrigued, still happens. And some believed, still happens. It is the same today. The world is full of gods, which people seek after, gold, silver, money, images of beauty, philosophies which are as empty as they are attractive. Comforts which satisfy for a while create a false security, but nothing satisfies and the search goes on. Why? Because people do not know Jesus. Jesus is unknown to so many. God our Father would move us beyond settling for casual commitments to soft religions which are self-serving, which allow us kind of a fool's gold of an earned reward and some kind of an afterlife or heaven that we can't even describe. We worship today the one true God, creator of all and maker of us. This is personal. He made each one of us. 
He is to be known and worshiped. He's been patient with us so far. But there is coming a judgment day when everything will be tested to its very core. It's my prayer that we will become so concerned, even agitated, at the lostness of others and the levels of grief and longing that so fill our world that we will become distressed over it. Provoked, maybe even angry, but not at people, not at people where they are. So many are going lost, never knowing the truth, without ever knowing the way, the truth, and the life, without knowing Jesus. It should distress us. Do you know him today? Do you know someone who doesn't know him? Does it distress us at all to know those who don't know him? It should and it must. Move us to action. Like I said, it's, it is my hope today that we will leave this place a little more distressed. Have you ever had a pastor tell you your stress level ought to go up? Well, just maybe in this one area, please. It's been my prayer. I've been dealing with this text for weeks. I'm praying to get a little more distressed. It's working. But... What a wonderful prayer it is if we're willing to go this way. What did Paul do when he was distressed? He went to the synagogue first. We can go to our church. We can gather together and talk through these things. We can learn more about this stressful life. We live in a lost world. And then we can go public with it. Well, we already are. Someone brought this to you all the way around the world. Here we are centuries later. Distressed Christians have presented this message for centuries and here we are today benefiting from that. So triumph people, friends of triumph, whoever you might be today, let us be about the business of introducing the one we know to those who don't know him. We will become a church which doesn't wait for people to come to us, but we will go to them. So we'll gather on Sundays and Wednesdays or whenever, and we will re be refreshed in the spirit. We will move from this place into the public marketplace with what is needed by so many who don't know him. We will recognize the false gods and idols of this world and those that are within us and we'll become so distressed that we'll deal with them. We'll become a group committed to saving as many as possible. Making sure that people around us have a way to hear from and to know the God who is seeking them who is so close, just reach out. He's not far away from any of us. People will respond. 
Yes, they will. They will respond to his message and the prompting of God, and many will find themselves at last living in step with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.